the notion that we no longer dream of another future is pretty well established now. But what what I think is less observed was that there were art forms whose existence really depends upon envisioning a future at some level and reflecting upon the present then envisioning not just like not just like a metaphorical future but an actual future that you could you know that you could inhabit that could function that you might want to move toward and although we no longer really dream of the future we still have the mechanisms that were created to dream of the future and we still dream with them and what we get now is like something something else entirely sci-fi to one degree or another is always a, a reflection of the present but it's a different reflection of the present when you assume that we live in an, an eternal present that will just continue on forever. Hey everyone, thanks for coming back for another episode of Wetwired. I am Sean Andes. And I'm Julian Paul Butt. But we're joined today by Kurt Schiller, the editor-in-chief. That that is sounds like it's such a lofty title. <laughs> I used to just call myself the editor, but that was when it was just me. Yeah. Um, and so now now we have uh, a managing editor and an art director. Um, that that being uh, Trevor Drinkwater and uh, Sam, respectively. Um, and uh, so it was like confusing for me to just be the editor. And then there's like two other people who have like more senior sounding titles. And I was like, well, this is probably confusing. I guess I, I guess I need to either give them worse titles or make my title sound more impressive. Right, junior editor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we are, we are joined by Kurt Schiller, editor in chief of Blood Knife Magazine. Editor Commodore. <laughs> I mean, Commodore you can, General, you just, yeah, Lieutenant yeah, you, Commander. <laughs> It, it is a it really is a pleasure to to have you on. I, I have been a fan of the magazine for a while, and I am not shy about admitting that it was encountering a particular issue of Blood Knife that gave me a lot of the inspiration to start this show and that to is, approach that Jules. Is fucking great. Yeah. First of all, thank you so much. I really appreciate hearing that. Thank you for inviting me on. Um, I was I was delighted to get the invite and I'm delighted to be here. Uh, and that is the the best thing that I can hear from someone is that they read something or saw something that we did and were like, I can do that or I can do something and then went off and and did it. Um, that that is, I think, fundamental to like what we're about. And so that to me is the highest praise even honestly even if someone was like this sucks fuck this i can do better i can do so it. much better <laughs> yeah you know that, what? that's like, how we that hope to inspire people on this show yeah we just we, we've set the bar incredibly low so exactly. that it's everybody like, thinks they can just step over it yeah shit if they can do it then i can do it too since i've already attested my uh fanhood about blood knife and the, the things that you guys are doing over there i would really like to know what uh, inspired you to to start that project? I can tell you the, the there's a long version and a short version, and the short version is is two things. One is, are you familiar with the? I guess it's a former publication now, the Outline. No, I've never heard of. I that. don't know that one. It's well, it's dead now, so it's too late. Although they still have, I believe, most of their articles up. 
So they were like a, you know, like a a sort of blood knife ish magazine. I would say they were in the style of like the old AV club back before they sucked. They were kind of along the lines of like, I don't know, like the dissolve or just like like they were a, you know, an essay based magazine that would do media and cultural commentary. In particular, there was uh, an article that a friend of mine, Connor Southard, although he wasn't a friend at the time, wrote about the revolutionary Gothic. And specifically, he was talking about the movie Parasite. And I read it and I was like, wow, what a good article. I love articles like this. They're interesting. They bring up interesting, you know, they're, they're, they're buzzy, but they also have depth. It's not just like discourse. It's not just nonsense. And not long after I read this article, the outline closed its doors. And I was like, shit, well, like now what am I going to read? I was just getting a city like, oh, here's this new website. I can read it. And like, it's, it's kind of like, it's like what I want. And at, at, at that point, this was in like, I guess like 2019 or so. And it just kind of st- stuck in my head. And then a few months into COVID, I watched a movie called Blood Machines, which is kind of like a weird synthwave sci-fi horror, goopy European CGI green screen film. I don't know how to describe it exactly. It was made by the musician Perturbator, I believe it is. And I watched it. I was like, this is really cool. I haven't heard of this movie. I think I think I just happened to see it on like a tweet or something. And I was like, wow, this is cool. And I watched it. I was like, I want to write something about this. And I, I had a sub stack at the time. And this would be around probably like April of 2020 or so. And I watched it. I was like, man, I want to write something about this. I have a sub stack. My sub stack was kind of more about like parenting at the time. And I didn't really, it didn't quite fit it. And I was like, well, I, I don't have anywhere else to put this maybe I should start a website again. Ages ago, some friends of mine and I had uh, formed kind of like a, like, like a media and, you know, essay type magazine. And we did that for like a couple months and then kind of lost interest. Uh, and I was like, well, maybe I should start doing that again and kind of, you know, publish multiple articles about different things. And I was like, well, I don't know if anybody's going to want to read just me. And also it feels ostentatious to just be like, here's my website. That's me. But it's not like, it's not just like my personal website. I'm going to act like it's a magazine. And so I had the, in retrospect, silly idea that if I made a movie review website, um, then maybe I could get free passes to movies. It turns (laughs) out you mostly can't. That doesn't work really. However, um, the idea about publishing other people turned out to be a good one. And so it was basically like frustration with like you read these articles that are good on a good website and then the website goes out of business because it can't make any money. And the only thing that seemed to be succeeding was like just utter shit. You know, I have an Android phone and if I'm on the home screen and I swipe to the right, I always want to say left because I'm going left, but I'm swiping to the right. It brings up this like Google now thing and it's just an infinite scroll of shitty articles just fucking bullshit and it's it's yeah. all like the seven new looks from guardians of the galaxy three that you can do yourself you know one big thing we didn't expect in dune two just just non-stop clickbait if you want to sell your apartment make sure to do this exactly yes um and i was like i i think i can do better than this and maybe yeah. people will give me some money to publish other people so that was basically where it where it came from the original format was we were going to do five articles a month they were each going to be only a couple hundred words. We were going to pay you know, $40 an article, and I was going to write one a month. Basically, none of those things stayed static. 
We pay more than that now. Our articles tend to be longer. We publish a little, a bit less than five a month, and I only write something every every couple months. So um, that's that was basically uh, that's I said I said the short one. I guess that kind of turned into the long one. <laughs> Definitely go go deep go as deep as you want. <laughs> I absolutely feel you about that. Uh, there there was this far left online magazine that just shuttered up maybe last year or the year before. And I fucking love them. Every single thing that they were publishing, which was from all sorts of different folks, mm-hmm. they were just totally on it. And it wasn't far left with a bunch of, you know, boring tanky shit or a, a <laughs> lot of the classical stuff that that we've heard for the last hundred years. It was more stuff yeah. that, that was more geared towards people who like Bookchin and Kropotkin and well, I guess that's 150 years ago, but like, it, but it was, but is <laughs> what did but, Bookchin think about but, but, Avengers? But, but like, Bookchin and like, and and like, and like, what the would he Democratic say about Federation, the new Doctor Strange movie? Whatever, <laughs> uh, Bookchin and and uh, uh, Democratic Federation of Northern Syria and uh, Abdullah Ojalan and like a lot of like really modern innovations in leftist in leftist theory and mm-hmm. practice and stuff like just really cool shit that is not the same stale stuff that i i usually hear and um right when i was just about to send them an email uh, to say hey uh, i've got this really cool article uh i hopped on the website and they said ah we're uh, closing it up here yeah and and especially like 2017 to 2019 it was happening non-stop and then it it didn't stop um, even during COVID, you know, there was a bunch of stuff that that shut down. And it, it's a fundamental problem with the publishing, both online and offline, although I know much more about the online publishing industry. The business model just doesn't work. And so you can have, and there's a reason for that, that I'll talk about later, but, yeah. uh, you know, you can have, you can have a decent audience of return readers that keep coming back to your website. They like your website. They have, you know, br- brand loyalty, shitty sequence of words to say but it is effectively what it is like i like i like this website i like what they're about and i like their thing and i will keep coming back to here um and the the issue is basically that like the mechanisms that allowed publications to make money for a variety of reasons mostly google have all broken or been hijacked it's a real problem and it's causing i think a decay of our ability to even use the internet as a communications medium increasingly the internet is becoming like a billboard that people just show you shit on look at this look at this look at this look at this it's no longer or it is increasingly not something that you can navigate as a human that you have agency to navigate i like this website and this website and this website i can go to here and is you know the thing that was there yesterday i can expect more of it to be there today i hate that feeling of like something i liked went away um and so one of my initial ideas was let me set our budget low enough that I can do this endlessly until I feel so embarrassed that I stop because of because of it failing. Now that <laughs> that didn't wind up happening, but there was a good 6 or 7 months where basically like I was publishing stuff and nobody was reading it, but our budget was, you know, it was like $200 a month and I was at a point in my life where I was like I can fritter away $200 a month to publish a few articles that I am excited to get and to put out there in the world. So it's worth that to me. Happily, those days are that that's not an issue anymore. We're, we're now entirely subscriber funded. So not not an issue anymore. But that was my logic going into it was like, well, 
if all publications die because they can't have a viable revenue model, let me try to make one where there is no revenue model, where we bring like any money that we bring in, we'll just give to more writers to make more stuff effectively. And that's pretty much what happened. Because it's silly, right? Like you shouldn't um, like a website shouldn't have to be a big enough organization that it can go bankrupt. Right. Isn't that stupid? Like it's yeah. a fucking website. It's just words and an HTML. It was actually along those lines. You saying that you're you know, that everything is is self-supporting at this point. And I think it was it was a tweet that you made a little while back, at least. That's what made me think, like, I really wanted to see if you would come on the show because it was such a cool thing. And I wanted to just shine a light on this that like how awesome this was, is that you started increasing the the pay for the for new articles. But the awesome part was that you made it retroactive. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, that is that was just like, <laughs> that's amazing. Well, thank you. You just don't come across that kind of news anywhere. That's not anything I'd ever heard anybody doing. <laughs> it, it was an easy decision for us because, one, it came after a whole bunch of great articles. And I always try to put the the writers or, or, you know, the other contributors to the magazine, be they, you know, our, our staff or the contributors. I want people to be thinking about them, not so much about the magazine because the, the magazine is ever present, right? Like to read the articles, you have to go to the website. So like, to my mind, we don't need to promote the website. Like the mm-hmm. articles are what promotes the website. And if we get good, good writers and they write good articles that will promote the websites. So I don't, I don't want people thinking about, about the website, or at least I don't want to try to make them think about the website. If we're doing stuff right, they'll be thinking about it anyway. In a practical sense, the reason that we were able to raise rates is because of all this work that other people had done that we paid them for, you know, in mm-hmm. frankly, a wage relationship. One of our founding principles was was that anything we took in, we would spend. And we we were we tried to be, you know, where revenue is equal to expenses. Um, and we act, we actually haven't been able to, to keep up with that. You know, we, we do have like a buffer in savings of, you know, like a couple thousand dollars. It costs about a thousand dollars to put together an issue. And we have a few thousand in the bank so that if something happens or Patreon fucks up or like, like it fucked up recently for a whole bunch of people, we do have like a, a bit of a cushion that we can maintain for a bit, even if all of a sudden there was no revenue, although pretty quickly we would need to start scaling down. Yeah. It was an easy decision because we don't do anything else with the money. And in fact, it it had become a problem where like we weren't spending money fast enough anymore. Mm-hmm. And the limiting factor wasn't the amount of revenue that we had. It was the amount of time that myself and Trevor, the other editor, had to, yeah. to edit issues. We could add another article to the to the average issue, but frankly, we're both close to maxed out in terms of our workload as it is. And so it's like, well, it's easier to just pay more money. And then if we need to make articles a little shorter or whatever, that's less painful than saying like, oh, well, we're taking away the article. The the other thing is, if I were a writer and I had just really kicked ass writing something and the magazine had been able to raise rates and it was right after I had written something, I'd feel a little bit, you know, shitty about it. And I don't want people to feel shitty. So we had the funds and I was like, this, the whole point is to pay writers. So let's just, let's just pay them. And also it doesn't hurt to accrue goodwill from writers that you want to work with again. Also, that's the other thing. If somebody writes for us and this doesn't always happen, I would love for them to have a positive experience. There are definitely writers that I wish things had gone better with, especially like there was a period where we got 
I personally got very overwhelmed that it was taking us like months to get back to people and that felt shitty. And we're still trying to, we're still trying to clean up some of that mess. But, but in general, I really want people to have a good experience because I'd like them to rate for us again. I realized that at the top, we didn't even tell anybody what blood knife is. (laughs) Uh, Blood knife. (laughs) Kurt, why don't we let you tell us? Okay. Blood Knife is a digital magazine uh, or an, an online magazine about science fiction, fantasy, horror, and capitalism is the short log line. In practice, what it means is that we publish between three and six articles each month that range from reviews of could be books, could be movies, could be music, could be comics, could be cultural criticism, just kind of like a typical trend. Everything that we do is from, I would say, a broadly left slash leftist slash socialist perspective. I am much more on the socialist slash anarchist side of things. But I don't exclusively publish people who share my exact politics, although I would not publish someone who had opposite politics to me, suffice to say. Tucker's out, Tucker's is what you're out. saying. Unless, unless he's had a real awakening. And I mean, if he wants to pitch me an article on like the socialist themes of like Akira or something, I'm, I'm open to it. I'm open to the pitch. So you don't want, you don't want like an anarcho-capitalist extension of the Robert Heinlein universe? <laughs> no, not, not so much. Although like there probably are areas that I would semi-strenuously disagree with that I would still humor depending upon like are they in line with some portion of, of our audience that I want to keep? But I'd say they're pretty they're pretty small. So br- broadly, we are a socialist ma- magazine, although we don't we don't strictly speaking bill ourselves that way because it's that's something that's just kind of like implicit to our operation, given like who we are. It's not it's not like the log line of the magazine that we are writing about socialism. It, it just it just happens to wind up that it's, way. It's pretty not much super dogmatic is what I'm hearing. Yeah, be, because I mean, frankly, I, I don't think anybody gets much from super dogmatic media write ups. Like, I think not that mostly just convinces. I, I think it's mostly just like flattering people who already agree with you. And I'd much rather make something interesting that puts a thought in somebody's head and and maybe 10 years from now they have some new perspective and they go join a mutual aid group or something. You know, I'm 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 much more interested in that than, than in getting a couple of retweets from a couple of big socialist accounts who are like, you know, yes, slay or whatever. <laughs> Nobody's really that interested on on uh, what uh, working men's international version Star Trek universe is operating in. I, I mean, um, I actually, I, I mean, that's that's kind of bizarre enough that that I might be um, the <laughs> the kind of articles that um, I Jules, you should write your spec piece. <laughs> the kind of articles that I specifically try to steer us away from are the ones that are like, is this anti-capitalist? Question mark. Because I think it's usually a pretty boring answer. The answer is usually no. But maybe there's something you can learn from it. And I'm much more interested in like, well, let's talk about what is in the movie instead of like or book or whatever it is, instead of just trying to be like, does this fit my political consumption needs? I do try to steer us away from stuff that's purely like like a political purity test on a piece of media. I'm much more interested in let's let's just talk about what's in the media, if that's good or bad and and like what that looks like and what its assumptions are and what that says about the world than I am in being like, 
do I agree with this movie? Because who, who fucking cares, frankly? Yeah. I, I saw so much at the time that the, the show premiered. The Star Wars extension, one of the extension universe shows, Andor. Yes. And I think I, I watched about half of the first episode because I saw so much conversation about it online. Just about how the presentation of the you know, revolutionary struggle and like how well it presents, like ca- captures that feeling. But it's made by Disney. Yeah. Somebody, somebody said this and it's very pithy and I'm not really trying to reference it too much, but... That, but it is very much taking the something real and packaging it up so that you can buy it. Yeah, exactly. That's very different than having an honest conversation about what this what mm-hmm. what it is, what we are actually looking at here. It's the Che Guevara T-shirt made in the sweatshop. Exactly. Although, like, I do think it's interesting to say my goal with anything that we publish is. I want people to arrive at a better understand or a deeper understanding of something. And so like, I do think it's interesting to interrogate what specific touch points is this piece of media drawing from. I do think that that's, that's very interesting, but I don't think that that's something that validates or invalidates a piece of media. Cause to my mind, media just kind of exists. Media that, that is not being experienced by someone is fundamentally dead. Media lives and dies in the interpretation. And that could be the interpretation and intent of the author. It could be the interpretation and intent of, uh, of the audience. And, you know, a, a different audience might receive it differently. And I think that, like, all those things fold together into what a thing represents or is. Um, but trying to boil something down to a simple question of, like, is it anti-cap? What the, what the, what the fuck does that mean? Like what? It, like what, it, in what sense? As you say, it's a Star Wars film, right? In what <laughs> yeah. way it, it, is Star Wars capitalist? I don't even know. <laughs> you bought it, <laughs> yeah. And, and and like, and you didn't just pay for it from somebody who made it, you know, and mm-hmm. crafted it. It, it. Like you paid for it from a company who's built on selling things and selling an idea of things. It does bring into question, like, how anti-capitalist could it ever be anyway? Yeah. I, I mean, certainly it, you know, no no reasonable company, if they're smart, is going to make something truly anti-capitalist that because it would it would damage them, you know? So, like, they, <laughs> they'll push the ledge. There's no Disney film that says, come storm the castle. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, Bob Iger is not marching out of that office with his fist in the air and like a Molotov right. in the other hand. Like, I, I understand now. I fucking get right. it. Finally, you know, <laughs> fuck all this. You know, that's that's not happening. But yeah, I, at, at the same time, I do think it's it's interesting to explore why is this like this? What does it what does it do to how people understand Star Wars or more importantly about how they understand the future or science fiction? Because like, for instance, Star Wars, this I think is fairly well-known trivia that, you know, like a big inspiration point for it was the Vietnam War, but that mm-hmm. the good guys were the insurgency. That's that's effectively mm-hmm. who the rebels are. They, they are essentially, a, you know, an insurgency. And so it's interesting to be like, okay, well, how has that shifted from this idea that, you know, one weird guy had in the late 70s versus a bunch of weird people have 
in like 2021, like, you know, what does it say that now that insurgency people can now be like, oh, well, they're the good guys like us, America, you know, everybody loves us. When we look at this Star Trek universe, the amount of people who who complain that Star Trek is suddenly political, it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Right. I mean, the, the Bajorans in DS9 were obviously the mm-hmm. IRA, or at least right. I think it's obvious, like clearly the IRA. With a little bit of a mashup of the Nazis uh, 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 being the um, the guys with the things, the shit on their face. Cardassians. The Cardassians. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, nerd card thrown down. You know, it's interesting that you say that because and th- this might just be a remnant of the time, but I always associated the conflicts in DS9 with the conflicts like in the Balkans of like Sar- of like Sarajevo oh, and like I, that, I can totally that, see that area. Too. No. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, well, it's 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 so fucking connected uh, in in the broader context of the impacts of colonialism and the impacts yep. of how nation states were forming in independence movements after basically the the turn of of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. I, I Sean is making a face, so I, I feel yeah, like well he has- because I I think it's funny because here we have two different takes, and I'm about to give the third because I always sort of interpreted the Bajoran Cardassian thing as Israel and Palestine. Oh, now that you know, you might well, be it's onto so something obvious, there, Sean. It's clear. <laughs> <laughs> which which goes to, goes along which is along the lines of what you were saying Kurt a minute ago about media existing in this in in this dialogue and in this interpretation right. that it needs to be seen not just by its creator but by its audience and that it, it exists somewhere in the middle yeah and it doesn't necessarily exist in just one place either obviously we don't know the mind of the people who are writing that particular story arc and the people who conceived of it and then later on picked up those threads and wrote the episodes but it wouldn't even necessarily matter what they had in mind if it if for us for some reason it maps onto these other things yeah although yeah and and i think that's exactly it like we don't we don't know the mind uh, the exact mind of the creators we can sometimes have quotes or notions or we can intuit things and say, well, maybe they were influenced like this. Sometimes people come right out and say, like, I wanted this to be taken like this. And one of the things I love I love about criticism is like that's that's one viewpoint and you can explore that. And I would I would argue you should explore that if you have something concrete where someone's like, I wanted this to be about this, then you can evaluate like, well, what does that say about how they understand this? But then we you can also look at all of our impressions and be like, well, why do why do we think IRA? What makes us feel IRA? What makes us feel, you know, like a Sarajevo? What makes us feel Israel and Palestine? One totally random example of this. I have a semi-defunct podcast called Parents Just Don't Understand, where we would talk about like children's media and parenting and and like the way that children's media shapes people and shapes our understanding of the world. Um, we did a long episode with the fine uh, folks from the podcast Hit Factory which is a 90s Oh, I love movies. that one. Yeah, I, that's a great show. Aaron and Carly are that's terrific. Awesome. Some of my favorite people, wonderful people. Um, but they came on to talk, to, to talk about Captain Planet. And Captain Planet was a personal project of Ted Turner. And Ted Turner was really f- fucking on one about Palestine and Palestinian rights. Um, really? And so, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so there's a very explicit scene in, there's one episode of, 
Captain Planet where one of the guys is like giving like nuclear weapons to like a whole bunch of different like political movements around the Wait, world. Wait, was it was it was it the the pig guy who was like literally like half man half pig whatever that character that, was? I, I believe his name is Horace Greedley, I believe is his name. Not not Greedley, Greedley, I believe. I think uh but I was going to say it might be um Verminous Scum who was like the rat guy. I I believe. But one of the groups that they gave a nuke to was uh, the uh, the PLO. Um, and they had an explicit scene where they confront um, some settlers and say, like, th- like, the settlers say something about, like, this is our land or something. And the Palestinians say, like, no, you came in and just fucking took our home. Like, you're, build- you're bulldozing our homes. And the show just leaves it at that. And I was like, wow, for, like, a mid-90s children's show this is coming down like pretty hard on like settlements um and it's because ted turner radical shit yeah and it's because ted turner was fucking on one about it and was he was like i'm one i'm super rich nobody can fucking stop me i own a tv station like a vast tv empire so i'm just gonna make a weird children's cartoon and and make them put a bunch of stuff out like palestinian rights in it (laughs) i love that stuff i love i do too fun weird side note so horace greedley I totally thought that the the character was drawn with like a literal pig nose, but he does have like these like piggish ears or something. Like it's 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 not a hundred percent human the way that they drew this person. Horace Greeley was a real person apparently, and yes. a founder of the Republican Party. Uh, and I'm literally wasn't just he like a Tammany Hall guy? Now. I, I think so. I have no idea. I, I this is the first time learning about all of their names. I oh, just remember Hog, the pig guy. Greedly. No, no, no. That's that's why that's why he's like a pig guy. He's hoggish greedly. Oh, is that what it was? And he he does kind of have like a pig nose. Yes. He he hoggish also kind of looks oh, like Oh yeah, that's um, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also kind of looks like the police chief from Smokey and the Bandit. <laughs> <laughs> When we look at these different, almost pretty fucking radical media in mainstream media, if you will, we see things like Rage Against the Machine, who were anywhere from leftists to almost anarchists. I mean, like Rosenberg uh, Marxists, basically. And then we have Ursula K. Guin. I've never known how to pronounce. Le Guin, yeah. Le Guin. Yeah, I've never known how to pronounce her name. I've just read it, but uh, which is kind of apt, I guess. Anyway, but uh, she was straight up anarchist. She she's she mm-hmm. said that her, her works were inspired by Kropotkin, mm-hmm. or at least certain works were inspired by Kropotkin. We have these that are that are winning, you know, major literary awards. The trifecta for for it's not the outsiders. It was the the stranger. No, it wasn't the strangers. What was the big book that everybody references that that she that she wrote? It doesn't matter. Left Hand of Darkness? And, no. Well, I mean, yeah, that one too for sure, but um it doesn't matter. Anyway, but like a, a book that is explicitly criticizing capitalism and explicitly promoting a a utopian 
anarchist civilization. Oh, yes. I, I always forget the name of it also. Yes. And to, I want to say it's like the outsiders or the strangers or the different people or I don't know. It's something like yeah. that. The castaways. I, I don't know. The dispossessed. It's the dispossessed. dispossessed that's what it is. Yes, there we go. And it's won like the trifecta of of great novel awards for for sci-fi. And and yet here it is being totally directly influenced, and she even said as much by Kropotkin. And mm-hmm. so we have these things that are mainstream media in in sci-fi and in fiction. We don't necessarily pick up on exactly what it is because we relate it to our own experiences and our own knowledge and our mm-hmm. own understanding of the universe. So somebody could pick that up and say, yeah, this book is talking about voting for the Democratic Party. Well, I would also say that I feel like two things have happened that have have kind of narrowed the window for for just kind of doing like individual statement art of like I'm trying to express some deeply held personal thing. One is that corporations have gotten very, very focused on like brand unity of like everything needs to fit a particular brand template. So like A24 whose films I mostly like, I would say, I, I you know, it's kind of hit or miss, but they have a very specific like brand and tone that they try to hit. Like you can tell, like I, I'm sure that there's some article where they have like explained what it is that they're going for. But that that sense of like, this is who we are as a brand and this is how we want to be perceived, I think has changed a lot from the early 90s, say, where like distribution companies and production companies saw themselves much more as business entities and less as like a consumer brand, right? Like like Orion Pictures is a consumer facing brand, but they were primarily a production and distribution company. And so like, yes, they had particular inclinations, but what was more important was how they functioned as a business, the, the you know, contacts and relationships that they had. Whereas now, Brands are very focused on like Disney is this and everything that goes out the door has to be like this. It has to fit the company line, whatever right, it's that is. It's going to smell like Disney when it gets out exactly. the door. So you're not going to get nearly as much like idiosyncratic art. And the art that is idiosyncratic often has to be produced like totally outside of the studio like system. And that's not just political. That's also like aesthetic, like artistic, even like production style. There's a wonderful animated film uh, called uh, The Spine of Night, um, which which was done by basically like two guys. Um, one of them is a gentleman named uh, Galen Morgan King. And I totally forget the other guy's name. And, and I have I, I, I apologize, but they were on an episode of Podside Picnic. They were um, kind enough to come on and, and talk about their film. And their film is basically like, what if somebody tried to make uh, the, I guess it's an early 80s um, sci- like sci-fi fantasy anthology film, Heavy Metal, today. And so the art style right. is Good like luck. that. that that like hand- Yeah. But I mean, but they did it. You know, like, and it was basically, it was a small team, self-funded, a labor of love that took years. And that's how that weird idiosyncratic stuff has to be made now. The other thing is that people have become much more fixated on, like, knowing the artists. Like, people want to know who is this, who is this director of this new movie? What are they like? What do they have to say? What's their thoughts? Way before the movie, like, ever comes out. And that, I think, has has put a lot of pressure on people to, like, brand manage their creative team. Well, yeah, the substance behind it is really, I mean, A24, you just mentioned, is 
very much getting a lot of free publicity because they're they're able to continue to hire actors right. during the strike because they're doing the right things and and the the unions have given the stamp of approval the official these guys are cool so go watch their movie which is which right. really stands out amidst yeah. what are we at four months now and I mean, the important thing, of course, is it's the material aspect. They made material changes. As far as I understand, I'm not super well informed on it, but that's my understanding is that they basically were like, yeah, we'll comply with the new requests that you want, I think is basically what they did, Yeah, um, which is great, you know, but uh, of course, part of the reason that, that they can do that is because even though they are much more established than most independent or non-mainstream production companies, they're still... You know, they, they have a nice combination of some of that that independence, but they're also big enough to have weight to throw around a bit, too. Yeah, for sure. They're not like three broke people trying to put a movie together. <laughs> <laughs> it's not happening out of somebody's garage. One of the things that makes it hard to write about art now is how stage managed everything is. Like you can tell if you go and read like when they hire and announce a director for a new Marvel film. I have to wonder how many hours of prep meetings they go through with like the PR team to be like, here's what we're going to say about the film. Here's what we're going to say about your personal vision for it. Because there's no way that they're just putting them out in the world to be like, yeah, just say fucking whatever you want. You know, it's because it's, <laughs> it's so it's so consistent that behind the scenes look at the production process is now part and parcel to the to the marketing of media. And so it's it's gotten increasingly hard to know what actually is going on behind the scenes like. They're going to push them out in front of CNN and say, all right, here's what you're going to say. Uh, yep. Make sure that you had a dream on September 23rd about Vincent Van Gogh, <laughs> where you met him. Uh, here's the story. Uh, just memorize this script and you're good. Yeah. What I wonder about that is like, will we be able in the future to uncover personal influences for these things? The way that, for instance, we can look back at George Lucas just shooting from the hip when he's talking about star Wars, cause it's his film. And he's like, fuck it. I'll say whatever I want right. versus, yeah. you know, whoever the director of um, whatever the most recent Avengers film is, I, I guess, I guess James Gunn, I think did guardians of the galaxy three again. I think maybe not. I don't know who cares. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's a part of their tactic as well is they're taking a lot of lesser known directors to man these projects in general. When you, give somebody who really doesn't whose experience doesn't warrant this large of a role this amount that amount of that outsized amount of responsibility right. they they tend to be easier to manage and you can fire them if they get out of hand they're expendable yeah. because you have a formula you just need somebody to execute it that's very different than some of these earlier like the the JJ Abrams type st uh, stuff in the earlier on because that was very much vision directed mhm mm personal vision mm -hmm. that's not at all you know what's going on with the current ones i mean where they look aesthetically the same but they they tend to um leave sort of a uh i don't know an upset stomach in the people yeah. who watch them yeah it's it's a studio <laughs> yeah. system like they have a particular way of doing things there was a point where i felt like very frustrated about it and i kind of just like don't like I think about it a little bit, but there was there, there was a point where I was like, you know what? They're just they're just going to do their thing until they don't anymore. So I may as well yeah. just focus on something else. Um, but it is it is, I think, noteworthy that 
so much of modern media production has become like, what's the current formula? And like, let's, let's just do the formula until the formula stops. Um, and there's a big emphasis on on that. And that fits with the, the current writer's strike, the way that it, it has been explained to me on the TikToks that I've watched by actual writers. I, I, I specifically follow a guy who wrote for King of the Hill and some other ones, and he, he gets all sorts of like great writer's tips. If you want to be a writer or here's how you can improve your script or how to get into the industry or whatever. And so, of course, he's been posting a whole bunch of TikToks and I have got a, a really great insight from him, his his TikTok channel specifically, about what this is about, you'd think that it's just the material things. And yeah, that's that's there. Of course, higher pay and there's the difficulty with how streaming pays out versus uh, the traditional model and it's just totally fucked. But the studios were, were ready to rock and roll for most of it. And when the, the union said, oh, and almost as an aside... By the way, uh, no AI replacing mm-hmm. us. Like it was just kind of like just as an aside, and then the studios were night were were that's the point where they really gave huge pushback, and that is when the unions realized, oh shit, they've been fiddle fucking around behind the scenes, mm-hmm. and they have been working on this idea for much longer and much more intently than we had realized we should probably fucking pay attention to what they're about to do to us, the writers with AI. And that was the point where that became a central feature of the negotiations is when the studios pushed back so fucking hard on the AI question. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense in retrospect, because to my mind, AI fundamentally is not an artistic or a creative technology. It is primarily a labor technology. Because the the real value of it has very little to do with the specific output that it produces. It's much more about how it fits into into large systems. And I actually I have very complicated thoughts about about AI, both as a technology and as a, a kind of element of a production process. On the labor side, I am one thousand percent against it. It is a tool to reduce the number of people needed to produce something and not usually reduce in a good way. There there are some things that I think AI is exceptionally good at and probably could just be used for. But at the same time, the reason that companies are interested in it is because it, it, it allows you to go from needing 10 people to do something to needing seven or eight people to do something. And mm-hmm. that's, that's, yeah. that's money in the bank much more like the, the whole stuff about like AI creating art is important. I would say, especially in terms of like artists and their rights and the ability to function as an illustrator or as an artist or as a writer, extremely important. But the the main thing is it's valence as a, as a labor technology. And so, yeah, the, I mean, the reason that they're going to push back against it is probably not even because they, in my mind, because they have like an AI thing ready to go, it's because they're having high level strategic conversations about how can we use AI and they and they don't want to tie their hands not knowing where the value is because we don't even yeah. know where the value. Yeah, you know, companies don't yet know where the where the value in AI is or isn't. They have some inclinations. A lot of them are probably wrong. There's been a lot of stupid stuff 
so far that was very obvious, like it, it, it's like shitty and bad. But within a couple of years, people are going to figure out ways to save money with it. It probably won't be a total, you know, the world changes. Everything is vastly different. It's just going to be little little bits and bobs that save 20 percent, you know, off the bottom line. 20 to 15 percent doesn't sound big, but if you're a multi-billion dollar company, it's a lot of money. We're going to be sampling in a decade clips from 2023 from various uh, news media sound bites in the exact same way that we we sample shit from uh, from CBS from 1995. Oh, so uh, we, there's this new thing coming out called electronic mail or email. <laughs> And if you've seen these clips, oh, they're 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 absolute gold. But we're gonna be watching it with the same hilarity of of the naivete that it seems to be imparting from those kinds of clips when we're talking about AI right now in oh, I, ten years. I've seen it, brother. I was there. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've been on the internet basically since like there was an internet to be to be on. <laughs> I I increasingly feel like one of those weird old men who's like I remember back in the day and it's, <laughs> it's it sucks because like I remember my grandfather talking about driving a bus through like the segregated south and and like all these like deeply human experiences and what he learned from it. And I'm like websites used to be different. They, they used to go to Alta Vista. <laughs> like, this is fucking pathetic. Man. You remember GeoCities? Yeah. <laughs> If you know what this is, you had a good childhood. And it's just like askjeeves.com. I used to check the weather on Expedia every day. <laughs> the song that I used on my MySpace was. <laughs> I have to say, I, ne- I never had a MySpace. I, d- I did have a Friendster, though. Do you guys remember Friendster? I remember Friendster. I didn't even know what it, was, like, what it did. Oh, I'm connected to these people. I don't know what to do with that. Since we mentioned search engines, I want to complain about Google. Is that okay if I if I just go off about Google a bit? Because they're my current enemy. It is. Anything <laughs> goes around here. <laughs> We're a Wild West podcast. <laughs> so si- since we've talked a bunch about sci-fi and fantasy, which I love, I'm always happy to talk about that. But I do want to talk about publishing and specifically the business of, of publishing because I think it is germane both to people who like reading things and also to people who have – politics somewhat outside the mainstream because fundamentally to engage in politics, you need to be able to communicate. And there's a lot of things that have constrained our ability to communicate organically online and organically is important. Currently, there is almost no viable business models for online publications. Very, very few. Almost all online publications are losing somebody's money. It might be the people who are putting in like like a labor of love, like I was for the first few months, um, until I should say specifically, by the way, the reason that we ultimately became revenue positive is um, one woman named Raquel S. Benedict, uh, who wrote the article, among, among others, um, everyone is beautiful and no one is horny. That was the one that like put us on the map. It got us a whole bunch of subscribers. So article. whenever I whenever I talk about the magazine's success, I I like I have to mention her because like honestly, like she did it as she did it as much as I did. All that I did was being smart enough to be like, yes, this is a good pitch. Yes, I'll put this on the website. Um, anyway, I'm. It's the first link when you when you Google yeah. 
there's a there's a reason for that. Ironically, it's not the thing that gets us the most search traffic. That's actually searches about summoning Satan. Um, if you search like how to summon Satan, that. there's an article that we published by a dear friend named uh, Kay, I believe it is, called How to Summon the Devil and What to Do When He Gets There. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's much more of like an ex- like an exploration of like Gnosticism and like Gnostic texts. But when people search for how to summon the devil, they, they get there. So there's probably people doing some really weird ritual shit that like, I don't even know what Gnosticism <laughs> is, but I need to, to buy all these like 16th century Polish texts. All right. If that's what I need to do to put a curse on someone, I guess I'm going to do it. But anyway. Listen, this is a water pipe. It is only intended to be used for water pipe purposes. <laughs> However, if you want to use it for other purposes, that's up to you after you buy the subscription. <laughs> I'm strongly in favor of people trying to summon the devil. The devil actually showing up less in favor of, but strongly in favor of making the attempt and seeing what happens. But anyway, so business models. Traditionally, the way that any publication made money was through its its audience. So if you are the New York Times, you have an audience. And when I say have an audience, what I mean is people who will come back to you without you doing anything, right? So mm-hmm. like, you know, you guys have an audience and the important yeah. part the important part of that audience is not the person who listens to one episode and then fucks off and like forgets about it. It's the people it, it's, you know, how, however many people every episode they're like I like this, I'm going to I'm going to listen to everything that these guys put out. I like what they're doing. I like what they're about. I want it to keep going. That's the important part of the part of the audience. And publications had a bunch of different ways to turn this into revenue, which is something that often us on the left don't like talking about because like, oh, it's like it's very like capitalist. It shines a light on, you know, like the wage relationships that have to exist even within like nominally socialist organizations. And it's it's an uncomfortable subject. And you wind up sounding like one of those like weird like business, you know, success win guys. But it's important because you need but we revenue have to, exist to, here. to do things. Right. Exactly. Like you can't you can't just wish yourself into into some fantasy land where none of these things, none of these rules apply. Exactly. And. I would say as a socialist, it's even more important that your your endeavor has revenue because then you can fucking pay people. And I think it's yeah. bullshit if you're asking people for labor and not paying them, for, you know, yeah. especially if you call yourself a socialist. Who's that fucking TikTok creator? Uh, what's her name? I don't. Anyway, she she's she's in L.A. and she she owns a fashion company, a fashion design company, and she pays all of her workers. Everybody is makes the same wage and they have revenue sharing and all the rest of it. She runs it about as communist as you can run such a company. Everybody makes about uh, 70,000 a year and it works phenomenally and and she talks about it all the time it's like something pendleton is her name anyway it doesn't Mm. matter but it's the same idea she talks about a lot of this same concept uh where we got to exist here yeah and at the very least we can operate our things in the ways and within the principles that we want to do it within the confines of reality you know, I mean, you can't, I, you can't pay your rent you, with praxis. <laughs> <Unfortunately>. <laughs> they don't accept that. So publications had a couple different ways to monetize this audience, which, again, another dirty word just means just means to get to get paid. You know, you're yeah. doing work. You should also be getting paid for newspapers. It was, you know, everyone knows about personals. 
you had 80,000 people that read your publication. And so you could charge people money because then they could put a little message to sell something and 80,000 people would see it. There was ads work more or less the same way. And then there's subscriptions and subscriptions are essential because for ad funding, you depend on a third party buying the ad space. For personals, you depend upon, again, third parties buying the ad space. Subscriptions though, even though they were not the the big money winner, they were important because it was a personal one-to-one relationship between you and the audience. It was you saying, here's my thing, and it's the audience saying, good, here's my money, wonderful. It was fairly direct to the end consumer, right? Like there were, uh, so like, you know, if you were, again, let's say the New York Times, a lot of people buy it at the newsstand, but a lot of people have subscriptions. And even the newsstand is still kind of is like another kind of subscription because typically you would have this newsstand always gets a hundred copies of the New York Times. So it was mm-hmm. it was reli- it, it was a reliable baseline, right? So you could predict next month I'll probably sell about as many newspapers as I sold this month. That's regardless of if we land a huge ad campaign, if suddenly if the the personals go up and down, it was relatively predictable. That's important because you need predictable income to know how much money to spend as a business. You know how many paper boys are going to be tossing uh, exactly. the, the the paper to the houses on Sunday. Exactly. And and also knowing that number means that you can go to advertisers and say, we get this, we have this many people, I can put this in front of this many eyes. We have this circulation, exactly. And to make a point about how small the circulation could be for a viable business, my first writing job was for a company that published like five or six different like trade magazines, basically like like professional magazines. The one that I primarily wrote for was called Information Today. And it was basically, it was about like web content management systems and like library archival technologies, basically. And they only had about six or 7,000 subscribers, but that was enough. To, to keep it running, to, to have, you know, full-time mm-hmm. employees. Fast forward ahead now, do you know what you can do with uh, set with, with a website that's 7,000 people a month visit? Fucking nothing. Nothing. Um, yeah, it, you can't yeah. do anything. I, I, I work in internet-based business, with internet-based businesses as well. So I'm, I'm all yep. over the traffic and the analytics for those things. And you don't get anything out of that kind of traffic. My dad started a, basically like a musician's, buying and selling forum, almost like a, like a very specialized proto Craigslist back in like 1997 or so. He wrote the whole thing in Perl. If anyone is, mm-hmm. is a programmer, you <laughs> yeah. will know, you, you will know what, what, what that signifies for the history of the internet and when this, <laughs> when this took place. And, and he, I'm imagining you know, a tumbleweed going across the dirt road right now, as you mentioned, Pearl. I, I love, I love Pearl. <laughs> Pearl is still out there. Pearl actually still, still runs a lot of shit. But not in the way that it did. Nobody has like CGI scripts anymore. It's all like PHP now. So this was around the time that like, I forget what they used to call them, ad exchanges. There was a specific term that that we used to use like in the 90s for like banner ad networks. And he signed his website up for one and he probably got about seven to 10,000 hits a month, which is, you know. This is like pre-double click. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. This is pre-double click. This is right when like banner ad networks like really becoming a thing. The mm-hmm. first month he made about a thousand dollars in wow. in ad revenue. Yeah, which today is a fucking lot of money. Yeah. The next month he made about six hundred. The next month he made about two hundred. The next month he made about fifty. 
the price of online ads just fucking cratered. All of a sudden, as the website, you couldn't turn traffic into ad money anymore. At the same time that this was happening, a whole bunch of really clever motherfuckers were convincing all the newspapers to put all their articles online for free. And that had two consequences. One, it made the content less valuable because you could get it for free. And so you didn't need to subscribe to the magazine anymore. So so they lost money on subscriptions. But more importantly, they gave away the audience. For For a website to make money now off of ads, who do you go to? Google. Where do you That's get it. most – where do yep. most publications get most of their traffic? Google or other shit like Google. Are we are we not doing uh, shitter? Are we not advertising on <laughs> shitter? <laughs> First you um, get your blue check mark and then you pay them $1,000 a month minimum and then you're good. That's right. Success. And then, and the, then you the get all the neo-Nazis. Billionaire <laughs> racist fascist guy with, the, with, with like the, the kooky ex-girlfriend – Sends you a check, maybe. Maybe. This is a bit of a uh, of a digression, but Tim Pool <laughs> posted a screenshot of, of a Musk tweet talking about the notification I, he was going to get, like, a check for, like, $5,000. It was, like, 30 or 60 days later. He's like, I don't know what's going on. I still haven't gotten my money. Is <laughs> <laughs> daddy mad at me? What happened? What did I do? I said all the right stuff. That's like there was a um, there was a thing where it came out that there was like a Peter Thiel organization that was funding a lot of like post left podcasts and like and like accounts. And there was uh-huh. one guy. I want to say maybe it was like Logo Daedalus who is like one of the dumbest. Oh no no no! It it, it was someone. It, it was someone else. It was one of those weird guys who has like the. It's not a dashiki, but it's it's like the hat that you wear with Kun. I forget if that's called. I forget what that's called. There's a whole bunch of guys with like at like weird avatars of Greek statues wearing those hats. I don't know why. It just seems to be a thing. Oh, I didn't even know those, that was a thing. How did I even miss that? I can't explain it. I'm sure it's racist. Oh, so I'm see, not I know about the Greek statue uh, <laughs> avatars, but I didn't know about the Greek statue with the hat. I think it was a guy whose name, whose handle was like Black Redux Killer, and would just post oh. weird racist shit. Super annoying, but it was really funny because it turned out that all these other accounts were like getting paid by Peter Thiel to push like post left stuff, and this guy was like, "Wait, everybody else was getting paid." <laughs> 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 It was, it was really funny because he just posted like he had this this moment of like self-reflection that very, very quickly passed. But for a moment, he was like, what am I doing with my life? I wasn't even getting paid. I was just doing it for the love of being racist. <laughs> I was doing it for the clicks. <laughs> it's like that Republican sen- senator uh, or congressperson of some kind who is who is who is saying Yes, I am also a black man. And yes. furthermore, oh, yes, here's yes, my yes, opinion yes. about that. <laughs> and he reali- and he didn't realize that he was posting on the wrong account. I love that stuff. It is al- it is always funny. As bad as Twitter is, it still sometimes generates funny moments. The business model that publications need to have now, that most of them pursue, is ad revenue based. Bloodknife gets about 25,000 unique visitors a month. Some somewhere in that order it, it goes up and down pretty dramatic. It, it usually within about 5,000 of, of that. So it goes down to around 2,000 and it goes up to around 30,000 and it, it it rarely leaves that area, which is pretty good. Yeah, which is like it's, you know, it's respectable. I, I would yeah. say it's certainly not a big site. I don't really right. care if it ever gets to be a big site. 
We generate about $800 a month in subscriber revenue. That's our only source of revenue. To make $800 a month with ads, we would need to make about we need to get have about 20 times the number of visitors that we Yeah, I was going to say you do. need over 100,000 yes. visitors. Yep. To do that, there's only one way for a small site to consistently get that and it's to chase clicks. And the way to chase mm-hmm. clicks is to cater to Google's weird selection algorithms and basically just put out like sh- shitty spam stuff. And mm-hmm. the reason that's happened is because there's no other way for most of these websites to make money because they no longer have the audience. Google has the audience. Facebook mm-hmm. has the audience. Twitter has the audience. You need to pay them to get their audience now. This is the same shit we were talking about with Martin Rook uh, about uh, Telegram in that in our episode mm-hmm. about Telegram and social media and, and far-right extremism about how – the algorithms are driving people in the same way that that catchy headlines are driving mm-hmm. where you you can't have a reasonable thing in terms of your content and also get the kind of traffic because the things that get traffic are fucking neo-nazis yeah it's all all, all hate clicking that's yeah that's what really is getting the traffic or some other like momentary fascination but that's not necessarily that like you were saying, that's not an audience. Right. You know, it's, the, it's this is like visitors. transient traffic. Exactly. Yes, exactly. A lot of people seem to believe that this is just a consequence of using the internet. It's not. It's really not. Because it wasn't like that before. Exactly. It's a consequence of catering to Google's crazy yes. expectations yes. for taking trying to take this completely unruly landscape. And figuring out a way very successfully to convince everyone to reshape their vision of things to better suit yep. their search engine. Yes. They had the same challenges with search as everybody else did, mm-hmm. but they didn't have some, you know, some magic formula. They just did a decent job. Mm-hmm. And, but what they were really great at was convincing everybody to reformat their websites right. so yes. that they were yes. easily accessible to the way they were looking at it. And not just that, even, even beyond that, there's an even more c- cynical level. So Google determines how the information is presented, and that means it determines what matters most, right? Like a mat- So when you do a Google search and you go to the news tab, it primarily only shows the headlines. Maybe it also shows like one sentence. Why doesn't it show a paragraph? I can't answer that f- for Google. I'm sure that their reasoning has something to do with like screen size, but it also probably has to do with optimizing engagement. And when when you make that the metric and you you say we're only going to show the headline, then the only thing you have to work with is the headline. That means you basically need to write clickbait. So the reason that the internet is the way it is in large part is because Google fiats it to to be that way because they say, well, w- we can control how people use the internet by controlling the way that the internet is is displayed to them on your phones, on your screens. They really have a much more active and sinister role, I, I would say, in shaping a lot of the bad shit about the internet. And they're even getting worse about it. Google started, like you guys were saying, as basically like a meta index, right? They, they would find repositories of, of information and try to serve it to you 
based upon your query. You'd say, I want information about episode 33 of the Transformers cartoon season three. And they would go and, and look for that and say, here's a page that somebody made about it. Increasingly, they're trying to generate basically de novo the answer themselves. And the reason mm-hmm. that they're doing that is because they want you to stay on Google. They, they don't want yeah. you to go to another website. Right. They want you to click on the ads. They want the you to see that everybody ads. else does. Exactly. Because if you go to another website and see Google's ads, Google has to share that money with you. If it's Google right. search traffic, uh, where so like if somebody searches for Raquel's excellent, everyone is beautiful, nobody is horny article, before they get to our website, they get a bunch of search ads and Google gets yeah. all that money. They want and yeah. they would probably ideally prefer that you never come to our website. They would just oh, yeah. rather you stay on Google. Yeah, that, that's that's no concern of theirs whatsoever. They don't care if you ever end up finding the thing you're looking for. They just want you to click an ad. Exactly. So what I think well, needs to happen is websites and publishers need to reclaim their audiences. They need mm-hmm. to turn their backs on Google and say, Google traffic is free. It's it's free real estate. Free! It's a free house. It's free real estate. It just, it just needs to be that. And that's that's how I view it. I don't try to get more of it. I like that I get it. I like that people find the website that way. But I'm not going to build my business model around that because then I'm building my business model around someone else's handouts, basically. Someone else's yeah. like table scraps. And that's not a way to survive. That's a way to become intermediated, which is funny because – the whole thing was that the internet's going to disintermediate everything. Right. Instead, it made two or three really big intermediators that control it just everything. just kept adding layers in between, <laughs> just more yeah. and more middlemen. Nobody goes well, to websites anymore. Nobody. I used to have like 10 websites. I would be like, I'd go to the AV Club. I might, I'd go to like CNN. I'd go to ABC. I'd go to Gizmodo. And, you know, I'd look at the front page. I'd click on some articles. Then I'd move on to the next one. Nobody does that anymore. Everything's fucking delivered through push notifications yep. anymore. Like uh, if, if it's or social not being media. pushed or social media, if it's not pushed or or I'm not doom scrolling, then I'm not getting it. Yeah. If, if it's Which, not discourse and it's not a push notification, people don't see it. Mm-hmm. Lucky for all of us, I happen to be omniscient and I had prepped for <laughs> this exact <laughs> portion of the conversation. Uh, I knew it was coming. I'm a soothsayer. Uh, and so I did some prep work and uh, I started rereading last night, uh, Society of the Spectacle. Nice. Uh, so, and of course, this this prep work uh, made it perfect for this exact moment because it is a replication of the idea. It, it's, it's not even a material interaction between human beings. It is the substance of the image. That mm-hmm. is what we're selling. That is what we're interacting with. That is the intermediary that is is functioning as th- what seems to be reality itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, where where we're we're not even 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 when we talk about politics, politics is not even about. Uh, uh, well, are you gonna are you gonna have more money in your pocket? Uh, are are the the capitalists gonna fuck you over a little bit more on Tuesday than they are on Monday? No, 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 no. no. This is about, hey, what what kind of cartoon characters are the ones that you most identify with? And we're going to find out in a Which fucking Eminem focus Which Eminem is the group. sexiest? And, and in what way <laughs> is he or she or they sexy? Is it the right ones? Is it, is it the good American ones? Or is it, is it, is it the weird ones? And, and it's, it's, this, it's the reality of non-reality 
this sounds so fucking stupid and overly philosophical. No, 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 keep going. You're right, you're right. (laughs) But it really is the substance of non-substance. Yes. It is the image becoming real. Yes, exactly. Yes, the Situationists fucking made it the whole thing in 1968. It has only become more true every fucking passing day and with parasocial relationships it has only amplified the more so mm-hmm. that that Guy Debord has become uh, a, a fucking visionary even though he was probably a total dork but <laughs> I, for, for, what, for the, whatever it's worth a lot of those guys wind up <laughs> <laughs> I, I myself am not a big fan of Adorno um, in part because he doesn't like jazz and I fucking love jazz um, but, but I have a bunch of friends who do like Adorno and and there are some things that he says that, that I, I find particularly um, interesting have you guys heard about the breast protest against Adorno? I haven't. Speaking no. of people who were who were dorks. So during one of the like Paris uh like student uprisings, um Which one? You gotta you gotta <laughs> you gotta I, pick uh a I season. wanna say it was sixty eight. <laughs> I think it was the one in sixty eight, I think. I don't the recall. The sixty eight one, yeah. Underneath the paving stones there are beaches. I I that sounds correct. That's I have I have no idea what you're referring to, but it sounds smart. So I'm going to nod my head. I, I am, I'm not good at Marxist history. Um, so Adorno was uh, scheduled to speak and, and give a talk. And he had said something about the student movement. They were they were like like they were vulgar Marxists or some, something stupid. He said something like sh- uh, sh- uh, shitty about it. And he, he also said some stuff about like, you know, like uh, – sex and eroticism is like inherently bourgeois or something, something to, to that effect. So a a bunch of like um, French college students like um, occupied his lecture and like took their tops off and started kissing him. Like, so there's, there's, there's pictures. (laughs) That is the most French thing I've ever heard in my life. Like (laughs) gathered around Adorno trying to kiss him with like their breasts out while he's like trying to fend them off like with a briefcase it's it's really strange <laughs> it was called like the breast protest and didn't he like die the next year I think so so, yes, so they he's kissed like, him oh, to death probably he's still sexy I can't handle this anymore. <laughs> I don't think he was German was he uh, but suffice to say that's how he sounds in my head um <laughs> so, about the society of the spectacle, I'll go even one further with with the internet because something something that plagues me about the internet is that to exist on the internet, you need to be perceived, right? You need to be active and emitting communications, right? Like if if I were to stop talking, you know, we're all in a Zoom ish room, a Riverside room. If I were to stop talking, they're you not still paying see us. Me. We don't need to tell yeah. anybody. Yeah. Okay, okay. Forget I said that. Forget I said that. It is a non. It, it is a non-specific kidding. video and audio chat program. If I were to stop talking, you would still see me here. I would still be present, right? But in most online spaces, if you stop talking, you disappear. And mm-hmm. so it yeah. has it has come to be that the only thing that makes us exist on the internet is communicating and publishing and putting stuff out there. It is generating spectacle. If you aren't generating spectacle, you don't exist. Whereas if you're in the real world, you can sit down and you're 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 present. You might not be communicating, but you're there. 
And that's not a yeah, thing. Yeah, and and if, and if you and if you are silent for long enough, the algorithm just deems you it, dead. It, yeah, it goes. Yep, yep. You don't exist and, anymore. And bye good bye. luck fucking resurrecting yourself. May as well just get a uh, uh, get a voodoo priest and and fucking call him up. Yep. Because you're 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 no longer. I can't tell you how many emails I get from Google. It's like once every two months or something where they they send me the notification that about what happens to my account if I don't if I'm inactive for. 16 months or something like that. <laughs> I need to set up like an emergency contact for, to turn over all my login information. Yeah. It's, it's so bizarre. It's such a strange, and like it, the, the point that I always try to make with, with the internet and with, you know, cyberspace, which is really what we're talking about. It's not just the internet is, is that it is a human, const- it's a constructed reality. It doesn't need to be like this. It could be any, it could be anything that we want it to be. And the people who who first started creating the idea of cyberspace wanted it to be something very different than what it is <gasps> now. Oh, do, 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 do. <laughs> you hit on the lucky topic. Uh, oh, Jules. <laughs> it's awesome. Wow, it actually came back around. You, you know, he had no plan for this whatsoever. He was just, it was all pantsing. And he had no idea. <laughs> Does a duck come down? Do I win a prize? There, there was a particular moment, like, uh, you know, I don't know. This is about maybe October or September in 2021. I saw a particular article, and this is the one that Jules was talking about at the top of the show when he said that there was there was one one in particular that that we had we both really enjoyed. And I read it, and then we, we had a conversation. We were talking on the phone, and then he uh, – and I read it out to him. And I was like, this is this this just had like it was such a moving piece. Uh, and it was the it was the future died in 1999 by uh, Colin Broadmoor. Oh, yes. Colin. Colin is terrific. That one just like it hit so hard. It was a combination of just the timing as well. You know, like I was in exactly the right space that I needed to be to really to really listen to that. That was the one that was like the that that really like sparked a lot of uh, of action out of both of us. I love that article, and I think it really gets at something fundamental that we've forgotten about about cyberspace and cyberpunk and science fiction. The notion that we no longer dream of another future is pretty well established now. But what what I think is less observed that I appreciated that you know Colin's viewpoint on was that there were art forms whose existence really depends upon envisioning a future at some level and reflecting upon the present then envisioning not just like not just like a metaphorical future but an actual future that you could you know that you could inhabit that could function that you might want to move toward and although we no longer really dream of the future we still have the mechanisms that were created to dream of the future and we still dream with them and what we get now is like something something else entirely it's just like a it's just sci-fi to one degree or another is always a, a reflection of the present but but there's there was a no it's it's a different reflection of the present when you assume that we live in an, an eternal present that will just continue on forever. Right. This endless now. I know that all three of us here have read this article. However, for everybody listening, what really gives what we're talking about right now a little bit of context is the article talked about a moment. And what struck me about it 
was that I had forgotten this moment. I had forgotten this feeling and this impression and this zeitgeist until it was, I was reminded of it by reading this. That was, well, that was so striking is that I didn't know that I forgot until I was reminded. In the 90s, there was this idea in, in cyberpunk and in general, there was this, this general feeling or attitude of the, there was an emerging technology that is going to change everything. Mm-hmm. And it is going to co- totally disrupt how we understand our relation to society and each other and capital and, and, and all the rest of it. Society is going to be turned upside down. And these uh, rogue hackers are just going to be totally revolutionary. And they're, they're going to, they're going to bring about the, the, uh, downfall of capitalism and hierarchy and just whatever whatever devilish and tyrannical system that you can imagine it is just going to be turned on its head by the emergence of this communications technology uh as it, as it is developing and this is this is really where i i feel the zeitgeist was 95 through 99 yep. That was the attitude, and you you saw it in sci-fi and and popular fiction, and just in even even in in mainstream news media. Yeah, yeah, everything's changing. New things today. New things today, and and there's this 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 uh, hope, almost in the same way that that you almost see the the kind of headlines and aspirational visions of the future from the turn of the century uh from the 19th to the 20th century where anything's possible we we we're 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 just now uh uh, finding out about the bicycle and 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 flight is now emerging Mm -hmm. and all these other technologies and the rest of it and and that kind of feeling of anything is possible was was emerging again in the 90s in, in almost the same kind of of zeal that we s- perhaps saw or experienced I'm not we obviously I mean I'm a vampire I don't know about you guys but but everybody else uh may have experienced in in like the early turn of the century the 1910s and 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 uh, the the early aughts of the of the 20th century and then it transformed into this ugly, fucking yes. horrific, uh, dystopian vision of the future where anybody who's into tech is is basically a fucking <laughs> anarcho-capitalist, techno-bro oh, yeah. piece of shit. And, and I don't know at what point exactly, I couldn't pinpoint the year when the techno-bros dominated the idea of tech mm-hmm. for the vision of the future. But there was definitely that point where there was this sort of socialist anarchist utopia vision mm-hmm. in the early, like mid to, to late 90s. And that is what this article talks about. Yeah, I couldn't put a put a point on it. But I think that one of the big things that changed is that for a long time, the Internet was a place where little weird things suddenly got big and then, but then they kind of like went away. There wasn't an assumption that like nobody really believed. I think when Google first became the search engine of choice, 
which I don't know when exactly that. I'm guessing it was around 98 or 99 or so when when they really. It was after Lycos. I was I was searching with the dog for a while. Yes, I remember. Yeah, I remember that. I also remember there was a weird one called like Dogpile or something that had. There there was also some weird, weird like like alternative search engines. But nobody really thought that Google was going to grow to become a multi-billion-dollar company. They thought that they'd just be like a like a good search engine. Yeah. Now the idea of Google going away seems impossible. There's there's a permanence to the internet that there didn't there didn't used to be, and it's become they're an institution. Yes, yes, there are internet institutions. They control everything. They are now the crusty, you know, Microsofts and IBMs of the world that they started out mm-hmm. making fun of. Like it used to be that you had Google at one end of the spectrum and IBM at a totally separate. I remember I had like a school trip that we went to uh, Seattle as like a summer trip thing, and we did like a like a two week program at. Uh, Nintendo of America, they have like a program for like high school seniors where they, they teach you basic, you know, like video game or they had one in, I should say in 1999 when I, when I was a high school senior, or I guess, <laughs> I guess it was 2000 uh, specifically. So probably, probably not there anymore, but we, we took this, like this picture of like flipping the bird to the Microsoft side, like, fuck you. Yeah. Fuck you. The man, <laughs> we, we like Google and shit, man. We like all this. We like Napster. Um, like there, there was this <laughs> sense, yeah. There was this sense that, like, that that just by being on the internet, you were sticking it to the man, not realizing that really what you were doing is creating a new man. You, you know, we we were building unconsciously a new god that would then come to control everything in a very real sense. Like the the reason that Google doesn't control more stuff is because they choose not to for for. Mm-hmm. A variety of reasons. They could be. They have the power to be way worse than they are, and they're already. Pretty and they bad. have even more power now because they removed the clause in in uh, in their statements. Uh, <laughs> don't be evil. So yeah. now that they got rid of Quite that, a while they ago, can do yes. anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the one thing holding them back. <laughs> that, that was, was the right. third law. We said um, we wouldn't be evil. All right, we have to stop saying that. We have to stop now. It's uh, <laughs> it's holding us back on a on a financial level. What you were saying, though, about how nobody saw them as growing into the thing that they've grown into, into this institution, and a lot of that was using the exact same tactics and legal maneuvers that mm-hmm. Microsoft used. Yep. I mean, they did exactly the same types of things with with by crushing out the competition and buying up other companies, acquiring technology that you was developed. You mentioned DoubleClick earlier. That was that was a with, major exactly DoubleClick was originally yeah. a separate thing and it was rolled into it became Google Ads. Yep. And you know, so Google didn't have an ads product and until they acquired yep. DoubleClick. I don't think they did at least. Uh, I think they did, but it was kind of like rinky dink. It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't just very good. sort of like a a, a placeholder. Yeah, <laughs> and then you know, with the once they did create this momentum, they were able to strongly encourage regulatory changes that made it so that nobody could follow them on that path. Yep. Yes. You know, in the same way that yep. Microsoft did with its own in its own area, it's just exactly the same model yep. in a slightly different neighborhood of the internet. Yep. And it's bizarre because it, it turns out that there's really only two ways deep down to really make a ton of money. 
with the internet itself or like with the web itself, that's ads and server hosting. So you've got like Amazon and you've got Google. Yeah. Everyone else is selling something else. They're selling software or products on it using the internet. Right. They're selling on the internet. Google and Amazon are selling the internet. Exactly. They are selling. And we know that because shitter hasn't been paying their bills. And so now they have to rate limit your number of tweets that you can see. Yeah. Are are they shits? What 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 are they called now? What 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 are we going God, with? I don't know. I think they're posts because I saw that that they changed the retweet button to the repost button. Yeah, is, <laughs> yeah. I, I did get it. I, I still have uh, email notifications yeah. for some reason telling me that somebody replies that somebody <laughs> sent me a, dra- a DM, and I and I I just realized this because I was like, what is this? And but it says you know view all tweets still in the email. Oh yeah, it's 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 all over the place. Like X.com works. It's Twitter is is interesting to me because it's clear that Elon Musk believes that he has like created the modern internet or like played a hand in it, and he really hasn't. He just like got rich through like weird, like random shit, and like you know, I will say he picked his purchase of Tesla quite well for his, per- for, for his, his, his purposes, you know, yeah. he made the right call there. That seems to be his one move that and being like, let's call it X.com seemed to be his one move. Um, and they, they, they worked <laughs> once, which to be fair was about as many times as they needed to, to, to work. But now Even he seems kid to be someone is called X for X, short. Yeah. Yeah. When he did the X.com the last time I was reading that, uh, so like uh, some old quotes from people who worked at PayPal yes. back then, but like when they were, when they were, uh, when they had just acquired all of that stuff and rolled it into PayPal and he kept wanting to name things X this and X that, and then how they were basically like limiting his contact with, with executives so that he didn't have a chance to have those conversations <laughs> yeah. because he, that's all he ever wanted to talk about. He's like an also ran who somehow managed to get like the most money I, in, yeah. through weird stock market stuff. Do you know about him with OpenAI? I just like bitching about him. I know that it's not really anything to do with anything. So he he was on the board of OpenAI and mm-hmm. he told them that he wanted to be the CEO and they said no. And mm-hmm. so he left the board and then immediately started bad mouthing them and is like trying to create his, he, he's just like a petulant baby, mm-hmm. but you know what? He, he is almost like an old school internet persona. And even as awful as he is at one level, I would rather have him around than the invisible people who are running stuff at, at Google. It's a good point because at least he's a person at least he's somebody you can, you know, you could direct your animosity toward. You can get mad at him. I at least get uh, 23 schadenfreude points per day from <laughs> seeing his money just absolutely disappearing. Yeah. Whereas, like, like increasingly, it's not even clear why stuff changes or who, de- who decide. you know, I, I could turn on my phone tomorrow and all the buttons will be in a different place. Who, who decided mm-hmm. that? I don't know. I don't even know who to get mad at. I guess Google. <laughs> that's about it <laughs> somebody at google yeah somewhere some fucking yeah. asshole at google but it's like it's 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 increasingly the internet is not a human space and so to to bring it all back around i wanted and want to create a space for humans to write and say things to other humans and say fuck the robots you know not worry about the algorithm just try to 
you know, just try to communicate on the internet like it was created to do. Yeah, and you've you've absolutely done that with Blood Knife. I mean, it it is I think such it's happening. a fucking cool well, space and literally every single thing that I've read there. Like I, I haven't clicked on a thing and been like, ah, this is fucking boring as shit. Everything <laughs> is just fucking well, cool as shit. And can I can I point out I have been trying to work my way through your playlists. Yeah, that's the hidden gem of the uh, of the magazine <laughs> is the Blood Knife playlists. Holy shit. So I I'm uh, uh so spoiler alert, uh, I'm I'm working on my next book, not that my first book was a big publication. Uh but I I, I am working on a book and I've been fucking listening to your playlist. Oh, nice. In the background while I'm making my notes and like trying to do character development because it is exactly the tone that I want. It is it is just such an incredible playlist. I want to give credit. Two of them, soon to be three of them, were curated by not me. One was um, Jamie Peck, late of the minority report, majority report. Um, she is now has a podcast called Everybody Loves Communism with Jorge and Aaron from Trillbillies, uh, if you're familiar with with him. Oh, really? He's, I've heard of uh, them. Interesting. He's a good friend. I listen to Trillbillies all the time. Yeah. So you should check out that podcast. Uh, but she made an excellent weird goth playlist for us uh, a couple years back. And then uh, I believe the Twitter handle is just from online. I think she goes by. Um, and she she also curated a cyberpunk playlist for us last year. I think it was unless mm-hmm. it was two years ago. So I can't take total credit, but all of them, except for two of them, soon to be three, uh, have been curated by, by me. We have another one. Um, Molly Noise is doing one. Well, I'm going reverse car- chronological right now. Of I'm, I'm starting at 14 and I'm going back. Oh, interesting. That's interesting. There, there's there's a couple early on where like I wasn't sure what like there, there's one that's like I think it's like issue two or four or something that's mostly like indie rock and post-punk instead of synthwave. And I was like, <laughs> this, uh, and I, which, which nice. I do also listen to. I don't only listen to uh, like, uh, you know, synthwave, but, but I was like, that was fun. But also I feel like it wasn't quite right for the brand. <laughs> <laughs> I think if anybody told me that all they listen to is synthwave, uh, that, that would definitely be a, be a, be a pretty strong <laughs> indicator that there, there's some psychosis going on there. <laughs> That's a real Patrick Bateman kind of thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, their, their first album was really not a, <laughs> right. yeah. exactly. It wasn't really until Apocalypse 1983 <laughs> that they really came into their own. Yeah. <laughs> it is funny how like, if you can imagine a name for a synthwave band, it probably exists. I'm uh-huh. sure there's somebody named like Cassette Tech 1983. Like, there's just kind of like a there's kind of like a format, but I still love it. My brain my brain still lights up, especially when I like listen to that stuff like at night driving. It's like yeah, there we go. Yes, I can I can imagine that I'm in a cool you know cyberpunk city instead of my yes. not cool not yes. cyberpunk city. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we mentioned it earlier. Uh, your uh, your podcast um, uh, roads roadside. Podcast. Podside picnic. Podside Pod- picnic. Th- God damn it. I, wow, you really I fl- mangled that one. Don't worry about <laughs> it, <okay>. Sean. <laughs> <laughs> but ref- obviously, obviously referencing uh, the the Soviet era novel that that is just so fucking seminal in in great sci fi. I've listened to several of the ones. Uh, I was actually 
uh, just before we started listening to the one about super the Superman movie, which was oh, pretty funny. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that was pretty that, funny. That was with Aaron from uh, from uh, Trillbillies. Oh, oh no son kidding. of a bitch. Okay. Yep. Okay, cool. Uh, he rocks. But, uh, he'll, be, he'll be on more. Uh, I, I, I think, nice. I think we actually cool. have one that we've recorded that hasn't come out yet. Or maybe it has. I don't remember. We did a Superman 2 one as well, which we were less fond of. It was a less good movie. <laughs> <laughs> there, There's some podcasts that I really fucking love, but I have to fucking sit down and prepare myself. I have I have to go to the study and prepare my cigar and make sure that I'm <laughs> I'm 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 ready to 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 listen to the podcast and and my and my evening robe is on. But 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 there are some that I can I can do when I'm bicycling to work or something like that. And it's fucking easy peasy. And and that is one of them that is so fucking easy to listen to. Good. I'm glad. I have to give credit to Carlo, uh, Carlo Yeager Rodriguez, dear friend and accomplished sci-fi and fantasy. I guess more fantasy writer than sci-fi. Um, I think he has written some some sci-fi though, but um, he really does all the behind the scenes work on on Podside Picnic. I literally just show up. They're like, Kurt, read this book, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> then I just connect and <laughs> that's talk, awesome. And just run my mouth about it. So, um, <laughs> so all, all credit to to, to him. Uh, and to uh, Pete and uh, Connor, who who originated the the, the podcast, and then kind of like st- stepped away to varying degrees. Um, so we're we're really like you know we're holding down the fort for for them until their one day prophesied return. <laughs> <laughs> I actually knew the show back then. Yes, and I listened to it then. And so when I when I was reading some background stuff and seeing what other things you were involved in, and I. I saw that you were connected with that podcast and I thought like, wait a minute, I don't remember him being on no, this. No, I, like, I, I was not. Yeah. So how long have you been doing that? Uh, maybe three years now, two or three years. Wow. That's a good stretch though. What happened was Connor stepped away after a point. He he has since written a couple of articles for us. Actually, there was one in our most recent issue uh, about about. AI authorship. He is a terrific writer. So I was delighted um, to get the opportunity to publish him. He's also a good friend. Um, at the time, he he was not. And so I was listening to it. And um, they invited me on to to talk about um, a not very good book that I that I wrote and self-published. It's okay. Uh, and I was kind of talking about more hey, that's about like, my the first process book. Are you talking about my first book? <laughs> oh man, I made every possible mistake. If you want to hear me sound like very, like kind of bummed out, go listen to the episode um, of Podside Picnic. The first one that I did because I kind of talk like this the whole time. Cause I'm just talking about my own personal failures. <laughs> um, but yeah, I did absolutely everything possible wrong. Um, but then yeah, Connor's, stepped away carlo kind of joined um and then it was like carlo and pete for a while and i i was kind of like one of a rotating cast of of co-hosts um Mm -hmm. and then myself and my good friend chris uh with whom i was doing um parents just don't understand and we kind of just did a bunch of episodes and then we just kind of like never left there There was never i think I think the only official thing that ever happened was that we we got added to the group DM. I think is basically what I was like. Oh, I, I guess I'm on the show now. And they can't get rid of you ever since. They can't. And they can't. Yeah. I just keep it's, it's, showing it's up. Like, now. It's like glitter. You do it for one performance, and then glitter is just showing up everywhere. Yep. Every for subsequent the next 10 time years. You, you open the box, there I am. 
Well, what do you guys think? I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I wanted to run my mouth about. Um, you know, the the one last thing that I specifically want to say is the only way. So, so I've already said the ways, the accepted ways of making money with the website right now really don't work. All of our stuff is through Patreon. We said, you know, if you give us money, we'll give it to people to make more articles. And we try to stick to that. You know, we, we, we don't, we only spend money on paying artists, paying writers, paying for like the website infrastructure itself. And, um, our, our managing editor, uh, Trevor, who does so much stuff to keep, to keep, articles going up he does he does editing so he's he's the only person who who draws like you know like pay uh from the website and he deserves every penny of it um oh for sure everything else is not easy stuff goes into the content itself um so like that's that's how we function is basically like give us money and we'll give it to people to make to make more more articles um the the only way that we can change what gets published on the internet is to publish stuff. It's the only, it's the only yeah. way complaining about it doesn't help. Not going to websites doesn't really help. Although you should still not go to shit websites. I have almost 30 years of muscle. I guess like 20, I'm not sure when the AV club came about in its modern form, I used to go there when it was the avclub.com and they, they, they still yeah. had the, the, and I'm currently untraining. I'm, I'm detraining my, my muscle memory of going there because fuck them for, for running AI articles. I, yeah, I will not go to the website any longer. Yeah, I, I just saw that today, but that, that, that won't make them go away and it won't make no. things better. The only way to make things better is to, to publish stuff. So my my call is always, if you have any inclination to make something, a podcast, an article, a blog, a Substack, I would prefer that you make your own website. I think it's good to make your own website because then you own it. Substack, mm-hmm. you'll never you'll never fully own. They seem kind of okay, but it's important to, you want your audience and you want them to be your audience and you, you want to be the person talking with them, not not Google, go mm-hmm. make some stuff. It's it's not as hard or as or as expensive as it sounds. People will help you if you DM me. I I will do everything in my power to help people start magazines, websites, whatever it is. That's what we need: is humans making stuff, not corporations, not algorithms, not Twitter, not this bullshit and that bullshit. L- less curation, just more creation that's that's ultimately what we need that's ultimately how we fix stuff so that was really the optimism of the initial internet yeah that was really what that article of the internet died in 1999 or wait is that the future was, the future died future. in 1999 the, the future yeah. died in 1999 article was, was the internet did too yeah yeah it did yeah it's been on life support <laughs> really that that was the aspiration that was the hope that was the vision of the future was that anybody could create anybody had the potential to access an audience and it became decentralized Mm -hmm. it it was it was no longer up to uh uh, brokaw to tell you what's happening uh instead you could you could (laughs) find out what's happening from from your peers which you heard it here jules is telling everybody to do their own research (laughs) (laughs) the other thing that i'll say is once you have made your thing 
and you and you guys are already doing it so kudos to you ask for some money yeah. for it people won't yeah. get mad no. I, I had a realization recently the whole freemium crowdsourced model of the internet to me is a scam yeah it's only a scam if it's yeah. for a public good or or a, like some kind of nonprofit entity i think like you know wikipedia I think it's probably good to uh, – I don't know if it's good to be a Wikipedia editor, but I do think that that is an enriching resource. Mm-hmm. And so it, it gets something. For sure. Giving Google free labor? Fuck them. They can pay you. They can afford it. Yeah. If, if you're putting stuff out there, at the very least, put your – can't you know put your cup with some coins in it and shake it around and and say you know can can I have some alms because you know pe- <laughs> people will do it people will do it people people genuinely will give you money to keep making stuff that that they like and that's something that we need to retrain people to expect is that if you want something to continue to continue to exist give it money I'll say Blood Knife is doing fine. I am delighted when people subscribe. We're not going to go away anytime soon. Certainly not for for that reason. So maybe subscribe to Wetwired. Subscribe <laughs> to a Patreon that you like. Subscribe to, to anything, any individual creator that you like and you want them to continue doing stuff. Because ultimately, it's it's labor. Mm-hmm. And if you can't get compensated for labor, then it's just, you know, it's, it's not labor anymore. It's just like volunteering. Mm-hmm. Get what your labor is worth and make sure that you're giving – to people whose labor you think is is worth stuff because that's that's how it keeps spinning and going around and around. Search ads are not going to prop this stuff up. Absolutely the case. For everybody listening, I don't need to say it, but I'm going to say it anyways. Like absolutely fucking check out Blood Knife. It is so fucking cool. The articles are amazing. I think everybody who listens to Wet Wired has got to be at least to some degree a sci-fi fan. Or they stopped listening because we talk about it enough. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, but the the Venn diagram between uh, people who like the shit on uh, uh, on our show and the people who would like the things on Blood Knife is a single circle. It's a one to one. Thank you. And let me pass. Let me again. I want to pass that on to our contributors and our artists and our illustrators and our editors who really do the actual like value. Like that's what makes the site valuable that's what makes it work it's not me accepting pitches and and posting to the website and that's necessary but where it really comes from is the people who who are writing stuff and making making stuff that we can then share with with people that's that's what makes it spin so to for for me all all credit ultimately goes to them because without them and without the subscribers it just wouldn't exist 100 percent you would just have my my bad articles. <laughs> Kurt, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us. This has really been awesome. Thank you yeah, so it's much been for a having real me pleasure. on. This is terrific. Do you want to, uh, I mean, we, we've been plugging the hell out of Blood Knife, um, but do, do you want to, uh, do you, is there anything else that you, you want to plug? Do you want to like drop the Twitter handle or anything like that? Yeah, so I'm okay. I I am mechanical Kurt on Twitter, spelled like mechanical Turk, but with the letters swapped around because I'm Kurt K U R T. You can follow me on Twitter if you so desire. If you desire not to, then that's fine too. I, I I'm not offended. Um, the magazine is is currently on Twitter at Blood Knife Mag. We are on Blue Sky. I think it's just Blood Knife. I forget how Blue Sky works. I haven't been posting much to it. Um, 
Are I'm, you on threads? I'm, I'm not on threads. I, I have disentangled myself from Facebook almost completely, and I will not be re-entangling myself. I will say that, uh, so I, I'm also on Podside Picnic, where we talk about the literature of the fantastic, I, I believe is what our logline is. So we do sci-fi, fantasy, horror. Sometimes we just do stuff that we think is fun or funny. We do some highbrow stuff, and we do a lot of very lowbrow stuff. So, you know, right now we're doing a read-through of, um, well, we just finished uh, Susanna Clark's Piranesi, which is a terrific book. We are about to start Jonathan Strange and Mr. Nor- Mr. Norell, which is maybe my favorite fantasy novel of all time. Cool. We just put out an, an episode on a super shit but fun anthology called The Dungeon Master, a.k.a. Rage War, a.k.a. Digital Knights, which was like a bunch of weird Roger Corman directors. So they were like, here's a thousand dollars, make, you know, a 10 minute short and we'll stitch them all together. <laughs> <laughs> and and by the way, uh, on the on the point of the, the pod side, um, God damn it, the roadside podcast damn jules Podside picnic <laughs> how many times can i fuck it up i don't know try it again anyway. it'll be three <laughs> you've been going into the stalker zones and it's it's melting your brain now but uh but on the note of that it, it is it is so fucking cool because it it almost harkens back to the time where sci-fi was so often serialized uh, yes. Where, yeah. where you know, I mean, we we kind of take it for granted that you 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 get it as a novel, but uh, it more often than not was serialized. I mean, you got Vonnegut um, by the week. Something I've become interested in is like old pulps. Playboy actually used to publish a lot of sci-fi and fantasy novellas. J.G. No Ballard, shit. Ursula K. Le Guin, I think even Robert Heinlein was published in in Playboy. So right no alongside shit. the mini picks, you used to have sci-fi and fantasy. Is that the Robert Anton Wilson effect? Wasn't he an editor over there? He was an editor over there. Yeah. Um, I, I honestly, almost all of the men's magazines the the gentlemen's magazines used to publish sci-fi and horror pretty pretty regularly yeah. uh, sci-fi and fantasy pretty regularly uh the other thing i'll say is we are about to put out our cyber our annual cyberpunk slash state of the internet issue which is coming out uh around the end of august it's, it's already almost the end of august and we are hard at work editing it um that's going to have a new playlist it's going to have a bunch of different articles i am trying to do a review of um, Corey Doctorow's new nonfiction book, The Internet Con. Mm-hmm. Um, if anybody at Verso Books ever gets back to me about a review copy, if not, it might come out just you know a week or two later when the actual book is is uh, officially released. But <laughs> and if anyone from from Verso Books happens to be listening, please check your voicemail. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I would I would love it if we had people from Verso listening to this show. <laughs> you never know. You, you never know. You'd it's be true. Surprised. There might be somebody in there. I know that um, what's his name from the Mountain Goats reads Blood Knife, which was surprising because he just like posted an article one time and he was like, cool article. And I was like, whoa, that's weird. Um, no so shit. Y- you never know who's listening. It's true. But I love your guys podcast. Please, please keep it up. And uh, anyone listening, you should subscribe to Wet Wired. <laughs> please do. Because I enjoy confirm. it and I wanted to, to, <laughs> to continue and I am going to go subscribe as soon as I get off. So We're, we're going to get yes. you to record our, uh, our ad reel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Wet Wired Podcast is produced organically. <laughs> Free range and organic, yeah, <laughs> organically sourced. <laughs> All right. Well, 
again, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I, this has just been an absolute blast of a, of a conversation. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm and I'm I'm always happy to podcast. So if you ever want me back for some reason, just send me a DM or yell out the window or something. Awesome. Don't there. threaten us with a good time. We're gonna <laughs> appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Thanks again, Kurt. That was a blast. Thank you so much. That was that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was really awesome. Bye guys. All Cheers. Right. Bye. See you later. As always, thank you everyone for listening. That was a lot of fun. And a special thank you to our Patreon subscribers for helping us to keep this going. If you haven't yet subscribed on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash wetwired. Signing up for a free trial will get you an extra two episodes a month and access to our entire back catalog. After the trial, it's $5 a month. And you could you could just do it and blitz all of our stuff and do a, a, do a binge listen if you want if to. If you don't know how trials work, like you could treat it like Netflix. Go watch your shows. And then just and then just dip out and come back when they have something else good on. I can't tell you how many times I've subscribed and unsubscribed from HBO. And you could also find us on Twitter and Instagram and also on TikTok at WetWiredPod. And of course Discord. Discord, the the link is gonna be in the episode description. I tried to give threads a shot. It sucks. It's boring. I can't stand it. It turns out that there is absolutely no correlation between an account that has good photography and an account that has something to say. <laughs> There's this, so the way that they just ported over all of the Instagram contacts, I don't want, I don't, they don't have to, they're, it's the most boring thing. I'm not using it at all. So don't hit me up on threads. You won't find me there. I, I, I have a, a handle technically, but it's not happening. I have threads. I'm still giving it a shot with with hope, and I'm holding my breath. But honestly, it uh, the, the the thing about Shitter before it was ruined was that it was really the the space where your parasocial re- relationships uh, were able to you were able to interact with strangers. That was your strangers' social media, and and the unfortunate thing about threads is that it's not a direct replacement because you're. You're just not interacting with the world. You're just interacting with your friends and family. I'm actually also on Blue Sky, but it isn't quite there yet. I, I have posted there. It's interesting. There's there's definitely a pretty chill vibe. Uh, there there are not as yet as many terrible accounts like you'd come across on Twitter, but it's not very very active. It's still pretty slow. So until the next. Twitter comes around. <laughs> we'll still be you can there. You us at those other places. Yep. Later, everybody. See ya. And my dreams traveled with it. It is unspeakable power. Whatever you dream, you will have. It's too late to change what has happened. But not too late to change what will be.